Hi, this is Kenny Albert. In my spare time, I always enjoy listening to Baseball and Barbecue with Jeff and Len. From the studios of baseball and barbecue on Long Island, New York, this is episode number 227. I am Leonard Hollywood Aberman, along with my illustrious co-host, and that is the old coot, Jeff Cohen. Jeff, welcome to episode 227. Illustrious? <laughs> you supposed to be, you, you know what? The, the script says spectacular. I know. I went off script. Well, we're a little off script because I, I tried very hard to, I'm, I'm trying to follow in your footsteps. Last week, I tried a rant. This week, I'm trying the intro. So, you know, we're trying to change things up a little bit, Jeff. <laughs> yes. Tell us, Jeff, you know, this is episode 227, so it's not 225, it's not 230, it's 227. And it's a heck of an episode, I gotta tell you. Exactly, exactly. Tell us who's on it. The Grandy Man, the Grandy Man, Ken. Curtis (laughs) Granderson is on the show with us. Who else, Len? Well, you know what, Jeff? When you've got a big guest like that, when you've got a Curtis Granderson for baseball, and actually a Curtis Granderson who spoke a little bit about barbecue, yes. so you want to you want to listen for that as well. But we have Mike Erickson. He's not, you know, he's not a major league ball player, but he is doing something for the Utes, the Utes in Texas. No, just not Texas. He's uh, really all of America. Right, exactly. And yeah, he started a, he he's busy with it, the barbecue league, the high school barbecue league. You want to hear all about that? Well, we've got Doug, he's gone rogue shiding, joining us. So what a episode, Jeff. And we're going to get right to it in a moment. Plus there's a pet peeve. Not and, mine. No. So a guest pet peeve. Ah. Well, let me just tell everybody this. Bet Online continues to be your number one source for all your basketball wagering needs, including pro and college hoops throughout the year. With up-to-the-minute odds, stats, and trends, you can follow your favorite team's path to the playoffs with in-game live betting, contests, and all the best player props. Experience the world's best wagering platform anytime from your desktop or your mobile devices. Head to Bet Online today to become part of the team. And remember, use promo code Believe. That's B L E A V for your fifty percent welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online. It is where the game starts. And when? Yes. How are we starting? 
I, I don't think this man needs any introduction. Well, he gets one when we start the interview, and that is Curtis, the Grandy Man, Granderson. Talk about a true gentleman and humanitarian, and a pretty good baseball player as well. Our guest has won the Marvin Miller Man of the Year Award four times, the Lou Gehrig Memorial Award, the Outstanding Player of the Year Award, and the Roberto Clemente Award. Not only that, he has played 16 seasons, a three-time All-Star, and a Silver Slugger winner. Currently, he is part of the TBS MLB show and the newest member of the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame. He is also the founder of Grand Giving, a national campaign for food insecurity which impacts over 40 million Americans during an average year. And he is the author of the book, All You Can Be, Learning and Growing Through Sports. By now, you know our guest is the Grandy Man, the one who always has a smile on his face, the great Curtis Granderson. Welcome, Curtis. Thank you very much. That's Welcome, Curtis. Intro. Appreciate that. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we met you at the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame induction ceremony, and congratulations. And tell us, how, how did it feel being a, a Chicago native being inducted into the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame? It's really cool. And as you mentioned, you know, Chicago's home for me, born and raised, still where I reside to this day. And growing up, I obviously had heard of New York, the Big Apple, and, and you know, just the biggest city in the United States. But being in Chicago, I was surrounded by Chicago things, the Cubs, the White Sox, the Bulls, the Bears, the Blackhawks. So that's what I knew. So then now fast forward from that little kid that grew up wanting to be like Michael Jordan, sticking his tongue out with his Jordan jammer in his room to now I got a chance to not only play, start my career in Oneonta, New York, play for both New York teams, the Yankees and the Mets, and then get inducted into the New York State Hall of Fame. You know, I couldn't write up this story uh, any better than that, but it's definitely something I wouldn't have thought about as a young kid, but to be in the position, it's something to great to have, have have accomplished and to be even recognized and considered for the opportunity was actually amazing. And you went in with Daryl Strawberry, Todd Zeal, Chris Chambliss, all the other high school and college coaches, scouts. I mean, everybody who contributed to the game is great. And you mentioned in your speech, Elson Howard, and who was the importance of succeeding. Can you talk about that once again for our audience? Yeah, it's amazing. You know, Elson Howard's daughter uh, was there to help him be inducted. And you think about a lot of people that were pioneers and trailblazers and, and barrier breakers in whatever aspect it happens to be. And Elston Howard being the first African-American to play for the Yankees, if he doesn't get a chance to do that and doesn't succeed, who knows what the future may have looked like? You may not have had an opportunity for myself to play for the pinstripes with New York, but he played, he succeeded, he won, he was humanitarian, he was a great individual, a great teammate, and that sets the tone and opens the door for the game to become as diverse as it is. And, and during my time as a Yankee, I had Japanese teammates and Mexican teammates and Venezuelan teammates and Canadian teammates and teammates from all over the U.S., but that doesn't start if it wasn't for somebody to be the first one to do it. And that was Elston Howard. Curtis, we were just talking to Rennie LaRue. We just had him on. I told him how that night was just so emotional. And part of it was your speech. And I know Jeff just asked you, and I just, I have to say it again. When you mentioned Elston Howard in your speech, you know, one of the things that you sometimes hear about professional athletes is that they're not cognizant of what happened before and you are. And not only 
in your speech, but you have been a, a frequent contributor uh, with Bob Kendrick in the Black Diamonds podcast. Bob Kendrick, and and I know this is about you, but I don't think you have any issue talking about Bob for a second. It's one of uh, the greatest baseball storytellers. My feeling is one day he should be in the Hall of Fame. And you've been amazing on that show. And I just, if you could just talk a little bit about your contribution to that and what it means to you and the museum and and the, the money that you guys gave as the uh with the players alliance you contributed a hundred thousand dollars let's just talk about that you know it's interesting you know the way you 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 started the your point there with the knowledge lack of or having it about you know the what came before to get you the opportunity to be there. And I, like I said, I was guilty of it. You know, I didn't know much about New York. I also didn't know much about the Detroit Tigers, the team I started my career with. So names like Willie Horton and Al Kaline, the first time I had really heard those names, once I signed and joined the Tigers and Willie Horton was one of the first individuals to come meet me in Oneonta, New York, as I started my minor league career, he took me and my parents out for, I think it was breakfast or lunch. And there's not too many restaurants in Oneonta, New York. So it was one of the two. So <laughs> we ended up having a great meal together and just started talking. And he became that mentor, that father figure, that big brother for me. And that's how I understood not only him as a person, but as a player and for a community and what he did for the city of Detroit. And then I started understanding more about just the history of the game. There's there's big names that we all have heard about, as I mentioned, Jackie Robinson, Babe Ruth, just to name a few. But when you start to bring in individuals like Bob Kendrick, and for those that are listening and watching this, if you are a baseball fan, you haven't Truly become a baseball fan if you have not gone to Kansas City and gone to the Negro Leagues Museum. And if you want to get one extra point, reach out to their executive director, Bob Kendricks, who we're talking about right now, and have him give you the tour around that amazing museum because his stories are so detailed. They're so oriented. The knowledge puts you there. You feel as if you are back during that time frame, both the good, the bad and everything in the middle. But he's such a positive and upbeat individual that you could just sit there and listen to him talk for so and just go like you don't want his stories to end. And because of that, my first interaction with him was in 2006 or seven. I'm playing with the Detroit Tigers, teammates Craig Monroe, Marcus Timms, the current hitting coach for the Chicago White Sox, Rod Allen, the TV personality for the Tigers at that time. I think now he's doing it for the Marlins. We all took our tour there and he gave that tour. And from that day, I said, this needs to be on every MLB player's list. You go through rookie development, you go through spring training, you have all these different things. But when you play in Kansas City, that should be one thing you need to do throughout the course of your career. So I started bringing teams there. So when I was with the Mets, I brought a busload of players and coaches and staff. I brought the Blue Jays there. I brought the Marlins there. And I have players now like Kevin Pillar, who just finished playing with the Braves, call me up, says, hey, we're going to be in Kansas City. I want to bring some players to the museum. Can I get Bob's contact? The 
clubby for the Blue Jays. What's his name? I'm drawing a blank guy down his name, mm-hmm. but he reached out. Hey, I want to, some more people want to go to the museum. Let me know. So, you know, so I can connect you with Bob Kendrick. And that is a credit to Bob, Bob and what he did for the museum to make it that place where you want to go and understand that part of the history, because it's not just Negro Leagues in black baseball. He talks about how they played against the Japanese Mm All-Stars. They played against the MLB All-Stars and some of the innovations that we have, like lights. Think Mm -hmm. about it. We have night games because the first one happened during the Negro Leagues. You know, so cool to hear the stories and hopefully, you know, the audience hears the passion in my voice as I talk about Bob. Bob is great. And that plus a million other reasons are the reason why the Players Alliance made the donation to Bob and the Negro Leagues Museum. They're in the process of looking to expand and grow and get an even bigger and better and new and more innovative building. But even before it gets to that point, the place they're at now, you have to see it. It's not it's not huge, but it's all about what's in there. And it's absolutely amazing. It, it it definitely is amazing. And if I can just stay on the subject of, of African-Americans, if you don't if you don't mind. I grew up in the 70s watching these great players, you know, Pittsburgh Pirates and the Mets. I mean, Leon Jones, Tommy Agee, my, my favorite players growing up. I mean, but but Willie Stodge or Roberto Clemente, those great I remember those great pirate teams. Back then there were a lot of African Americans. I believe it was like 20 over 20%. Now it's really it's very few. Uh we've been told through the media and other interviews that because of accessibility, the special agents of, of baseball camp, the, the cost of equipment, etc. But I, I heard you give an interview and made so much more sense, and no one ever speaks of, is the cutting back of college scholarships, the, the number of rounds in the draft. Now it's up 20, you used to have 50. Could you talk about that? Because that was very interesting. You know, and you touched on some of those things, you know, all the different things you mentioned are barriers to the game. And it's not just a race thing. I mean, there's a lot of kids that would love to play this game. Their families would love to play this game. But there's certain financial hurdles that make it difficult. Case in point, I have some friends I grew up with that are white individuals. And they're telling me I'm thinking about purchasing an RV because that's going to be more affordable for me to take my child to all these different travel tournaments and showcases across the country. And again, you know, you, the three of us here are from a time where, hey, if you wanted to play, that opportunity was there for you. You sold some candy bars, you sold some raffle Mm -hmm. tickets, you got your jersey top, you had to provide your own bottom, but you had an opportunity to play. And I think that's where things have gotten a little interesting that, If I just want to play, it doesn't mean I want to be the best. I want to be a superstar. I just want to play the game. That part has changed and has made it very difficult. You can do it in T-ball and introductory, but once you start getting to 12 and 13, I just can't sign up for a house league that's affordable for me. My only option or a lot of my options are the travel slash pay, and it's definitely not cheap. So that's that, that's that part. But then you add into, as I mentioned, the college scholarships, the draft and all that connectivity. I, I'm not sure when you heard that interview, but I've mentioned that, you know, a lot of different times. And there's some people that correlate the time frame you mentioned, the 70s and the 80s, where African-American participation was at its highest. But the college scholarships were also higher then than they are now. So now let's fast forward to 2023, which just happened. We have the MLB draft. 80% of those drafted players in those 20 rounds came from college. 
So if we're looking at how do we get more people into the pipeline to have more opportunities to have players that are potentially professional players, well, we're showing that college is the route right now. We got to get more players in the college. But there's a lot of players right now that if given the opportunity and I get offered a scholarship, which is most likely not going to be a full scholarship. And for the audience out there, 11.7 are the full amount of scholarships a Division I university that is fully funded can give to players. If you watch baseball, there are more than 11.7 <laughs> players. Oh, yeah. So whether you have a degree or not, you start doing the math. Somebody's getting a little bit. Someone's getting a little more. Someone's getting a little less. There are some rules. The minimum needs to be 25% unless you're a walk-on. But again, let's just start looking at some of the basic things. We'll just use University of Michigan. They just won the college football national championship. If you are an out-of-state individual at that university, I think the tuition is anywhere between forty dollars and $60,000. So again, 25% of that makes it very hard for me to afford that option and to consider that option. Now, there may be some other things where you might get some additional aid or not, but that's not guaranteed. But from the baseball scholarship side of it, if we can try to find some ways, maybe in connection with MLB, maybe in connection with the union, maybe in connection with some other sponsors. Now we have the name, image and likeness NIL opportunities to make things a little bit more affordable. Now we get kids that hopefully if they can stay in the game past the age of 12 and 13, and their skills can shine, and college is a possibility, they can not only go to college, they can afford college, they can improve in college, and possibly get drafted. Because again, 80% of the draft were college Mm -hmm. players. So we have to start getting more of them into college baseball, and that can start to make the game even more diverse than it already is. What's great is when you think about it, we have Curtis Granderson, You played for 16 seasons in the major leagues. We've been on with you now for a a decent amount of time. There'll never be enough time with you. (laughs) But we have not touched on your career as a player. That's something to be proud of is that, you know, you're doing so much beyond your career. But I'm going to and I want to get to the Players Alliance. But but this is a very important question, because I read somewhere that when you started college, you were an accounting major. You were going to be an accountant. <laughs> so, <true>. Yeah, <laughs> I, I took a, a high school intro to business class, and they said, if you like this, maybe you should major in accounting. I said, okay, great. So then I enroll, uh, you know, get a scholarship offer at the University of Illinois, Chicago, which was not a full scholarship. So continuing that theme, uh, right. but my school was one of the most affordable schools at that time in the country. So financially, it made a lot of sense. But now it's time to declare a major. And I said, well, they told me if I like this class, take accounting. So I take accounting and I was enjoying it. And I, but I just thought, okay, you know what? This isn't exactly what I want to do when I finish. So I ended up switching, staying in the College of Business and chose management and then added a double major of marketing. And that's what I graduated and got my degree in. But that's what I started as my first year of school. I was an accounting major. And the only reason I changed, I said, you know what? I don't know if I want to do that my whole life. I felt like, you know, being around sport either whether it was sport management, sport marketing, branding, promoting, agent, representing, highlighting, bringing the best new player, the new shoe, the new gear to the audience. Somehow that was going to be in my mix. 
But again, who would have thought that I got a chance to not only continue to play the sport, but then do some of those things I thought about, like being a New Balance rep and Rawlings and Louisville Slugger and getting a chance to do a commercial and post things on social media and try to get people to, you know, use my glove or batting gloves. Like I never thought that stuff would happen, but it is so crazy to think about that my degree kind of put me in that space. And of course, my career gave me the opportunity to do so. Uh, but it's, it was also funny because as I would play, I'd be in the middle of a game and I would recognize and acknowledge marketing mishaps in ways things can improve. Why is this stadium not sold out? Why is this stadium sold out? They did this ad in the third inning. They did this marketing promotion thing there. This team didn't. This team did. And it, I would be in the outfield thinking that stuff. Okay, here's the ball. It's coming to me. Boom. All right. Man, if they would have done, you know, that that relay race this inning, this would have been better. You know, I was always kind of well, looking at it like how to make it more enjoyable, more exciting, more entertaining. Because it is. We're, we're entertainers. You know, it's sports entertainment. Right. And it should be, you know, the most exciting thing for that duration. And in my mind was always thinking about that as a minor league player all the way through to the big leagues. Wow. Speaking of entertainment, uh, you were traded from the Tigers to the Yankees. And so I have to hear your reaction to the first time you heard jo John Sterling singing the Grandy Man. You know, I don't know if I heard it <laughs> first. I had fans coming up to me singing it. And I'm like, why are they singing the Grandy Man can? I was like, I didn't know if it was a compliment. I didn't know how to take it. The people were smiling when they would say it. But you got to remember, if it, if I hit the home run during the game and Sterling says it, it's it's on the radio feed. I, and I'm not hearing it until after the fact, right? Right. So it went probably, I'd say, a month or so before I actually heard him say it. I said, oh, okay, this is what everyone's <laughs> doing. So it's really cool. It's It's so unique that... You know, you have someone like Sterling who has so many players that you you got to talk about throughout the course of his life broadcasting games. And you're thinking of things that can 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 connect to that player and that player to the fans. And you're hoping things stick and people will let you know if it doesn't. You know, they'll respond one way or the other, whether it's a written letter, whether it's through social media, whether it's a phone call somehow. They'll let you know. And that's one that, like I said, I mean, it's amazing how many people will mention it to me. Even in the intro, you referenced me as the Grandy Man, right? Like that's that John Sterling gave me that nickname, you know, <laughs> off of that. Like I had been called Grandy at one point just because my last name is so long. And in baseball, you know, everybody's always called their last name. And then it got shortened to Grandy. And then he added Grandy Man. And from huh? that point, I've been the Grandy Man. I was going to call you CJ. That's yes. it, you know? Yeah, you know, my, my family calls me CJ, Curtis Jr. So uh, I have a lot of friends and family that still only call me that. My mom and dad only call me that. I've never heard them call me Curtis. They've referenced me as Curtis. But like, if I call my mom right now, she's like, hey, CJ. And that's because my name is Curtis Jr. So for the longest time, I kind of kept it under wraps because it was a way for me to identify people in the stands. So whenever I would play in Chicago, whether it was the Cubs or the Whites, I could have a lot of friends and family come out. And I would hear someone say, hey, Grandy, hey, Granderson, hey, Curtis. I wouldn't think anything. I'd hear, hey, CJ, 
turn around. What's going on? You know, it'd be someone I either grew up with or played with or, you know, know, you know, somehow. But that's how I knew it for a long time. And then more and more people started hearing it and catch on. I still think a lot of people didn't know because they thought it was C.G. Curtis Granderson. They didn't know I was a junior. So uh, it's just one of those little secrets that I always kept throughout the course of my career. Curtis, you were in 2011 and 2012. You had two years that were unbelievable years, right? I mean, in 2011, you were an all-star. You placed fourth in MVP voting. You got the Silver Slugger. 2012, you hit 43 home runs as opposed to 41 the last year. When you are in that zone, two years, you are in a zone like that. What What is, do, do you kind of like, like pinch yourself like i mean you played 16 years you had an amazing career but those two years do you think statistically well you don't have to you could see statistically those are two of your best years but what what is it like when you're in a zone like that how do you feel the credit goes to kevin long my hitting coach then with the yankees and i also was fortunate enough to have him again with the mets and just the the lineup I had around me, I think those are two things that helped me get into that zone. In 2010, the year before all that stuff happened, you know, I'm playing decent. You know, I just got traded over, just trying to, you know, find and get in the zone. But I feel like I'm not clicking on full cylinders. And I go to Kevin Long right before we go to play the Texas Rangers. I said, hey, I want to talk to you about some stuff. I just feel like I'm not where I'm at. He goes, I'm actually glad you did. I was going to wait until the offseason. We were going to adjust some things. But since you've talked about it, let's do it now. And we were in a position where we can afford to. Joe Girardi sat me for two games. And in Texas, all I did was go in the cage. Kevin Long and I made a couple tweaks, modification, the biggest one being going from a one-handed finish which the reason I did that, I was a big fan of King Griffey Jr. I had no reason why I was doing it. He did it. It looked cool. I wanted to do it. That's why I had a one-handed finish. And he said, no, you're starting to reach a little bit. Let's go to a two-handed finish. It'll keep the ball a little bit closer to you so you can have a little bit more power. So we made the change during the Texas Rangers series in 2010. And I remember I had to pinch hit, I think, the second game of that being sat. And I wasn't ready. Like, I'm, I'm still working on this, right? But it's the middle of the season. It's, I think, August, right? Like, I'm not, I'm ready, but I'm not ready. I'm making a change, but I'm not ready to, to debut it in front of everybody. So I pinch hit in the seventh or the eighth. I get a pitch that I think I can handle. I pop it up to, I think, shortstop. So I'm like, oh, man, like, if I would have just done what I was doing, I probably would have crushed that ball. And this is what makes Kevin Long so good. I come back in and Kevin's the first person I see. And he goes, you were right there. That was it. We just missed it. We got it. So now I go from mentally, if I would have just stayed with what I had, maybe I would have had success too. I'm right there. He just told me I'm right there. The confidence is through. Let's get back in the cage. Let's work. I can't wait to go back there and keep doing this because we're right there. And sure enough, we just kept it going, kept it going. I flew to see him that offseason before the 2011 season. And then things just continued to roll to start that next year. But everyone's like, you know, how did you end up getting so hot and getting so many home runs? But if you look at that lineup at that time, I'm still coming into my own. 
we have established superstars that are surrounding me in the lineup. Derek Jeter, A-Rod, Teixeira, Cano, Posada. So if you have to pick, do you want to pitch to them or you want to pitch to me at that time? I'm getting pitches I can hit because they're going to take their chances on me versus those guys with three, four, five hundred home runs already. Gold gloves, silver sluggers, MVPs, all that. So I'm getting pitches to hit and everything we worked on with Kevin Long is working. It's clicking. And then you mentioned, how does it feel to be in that zone? There was a stretch where I would be leaving my apartment on the Upper East Side, headed to the stadium. I go, I haven't hit a home run in a couple of days. I'm probably going to hit one today. And it would happen. <laughs> like, I was in that wow. type of zone there. Wow. Like, it wasn't like, I'm going to go ahead and try to do it. I was like, oh, it's been like three, four days. I haven't hit one. And then sure enough, I would hit one. But I, it, it was going because if you do the math, you know, to hit 40 plus home runs, we only play 160 games. So it's happening, you know, once every three or four games. And sure enough, it was. And it was just uh, amazing to see. The crazy part about it is not like I hit balls much further, but Yankee Stadium did help, right? It's shorter in right field. Balls I would hit in Comerica Park, which were a lot bigger, were doubles and triples. Those balls became home runs, but I was able to do that more consistently because of what Kevin Long and I had been working on prior to that offseason. And, and Curtis, with the Yankees, everybody always refers to the core four of Posada, Jita. Mariano and Pettit. And uh, uh, hopefully Rennie's listening because he we, he mentioned this in, in our interview. Bernie Williams should really, it, it should really be a core five, I think, on the Yankees. Yeah, I don't know why he doesn't get included in that group. You know what? Like he, he was another one that, you know, I, I knew of because I was a, I was a Braves fan. So I remember the Yankees beating the Braves in 97, 98, one of those two. 90, 96. Yeah. 96, 96. And I just remember watching that and seeing all that happen. And obviously you get a little bit later and then Bernie Williams comes into the mix. And then I'm removed because now I'm starting to get in it. And I remember playing against them, playing against Bernie and Jeter and the core four and all those guys. And then now, you know, it's, it's later on. But you start looking back at just not only his career, but his career in the playoffs, right, where it matters the most. And he was as instrumental as anybody else in that entire organization throughout history. So you could say core five, you could say, you know, four plus one, you could put him in a category of his own. I mean, he did so many amazing things in one of the most demanding positions. I'm not just saying that because I'm a center fielder. But we know, <laughs> you know, Historically, like center field is not the easiest position. Center, short, ca- catch and pitch, you know, that middle part of the field. Mm-hmm. To not only do that and do it at a high level, yeah. produce and produce with power and produce with average and to also win, you know, he he did it and uh, just a great human being on top of all that, which was really cool to see when I got a chance to meet him a few times. And one heck of a guitar player, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to take you back to your first hit. You know, you were playing for the Detroit Tigers and you're from Chicago and voila, you're hitting it in Chicago. How special was that? Wow. You know, I I had gotten called up to the big leagues in September of 2004. We play in Cleveland. I think I may have gotten it. Um, You know what? We play at home against Minnesota first. And I bat against uh, Brad Ratke. And I'm like, all right, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And he's just throwing me change ups. And I'm rolling over balls and can't figure it out. Then we go to Cleveland. I don't think I 
I might have played once or twice. We go to Baltimore, then we come to Chicago. Bobby Higginson, one of my teammates, goes, are you ever going to get a hit? So now it's in my head. I'm going to be the <laughs> first major leaguer to ever not have a hit. So it's in my head. So the first two games, I don't think I play in Chicago. And then the last game, I get a chance to pinch hit. And we're losing, I think, eight to one. Freddie Garcia is pitching a gym against us for the White Sox. And I got a chance to play with Freddie. Freddie, great guy. So I come up. And at that time, as a player, all your tickets that you wanted were free. You just had to see who on the team was not using their tickets. So I would go to Dimitri on, hey, are you using yours? I'd get his two to four tickets and so on and so on and so on. So I got about 60 to 80 people sitting right behind home plate that are all there. Most they're either Cubs or White Sox fans because they're from Chicago, but they're there cheering for me because, you know, they know me. And Freddie Garcia throws me a pitch and I kind of roll it over. And I remember this Willie Harris is playing second base, current third base coach for the Chicago Cubs. And he's going after it. And I saw him and he let it go. And I know he let it go because he could have (laughs) easily made that play. But that becomes my first hit. I make it to first base and then. You know, I got to thank the Chicago White Sox for this because they didn't have to do this, especially as a visiting player. They put it up on the scoreboard, Curtis Granderson, first major league hit. And that 60 to 80 people that are sitting behind home plate are going nuts. They're just loud and they're rah-rah and they're doing all this. But we're losing eight to one. So all the White Sox (laughs) fans are, what's going on, right? They don't know what's going on. So... I do that. I get that hit in Chicago and then like a walk or another hit. And I end up coming around. I score my first run also in Chicago. So just really cool to have that moment in front of so many friends and family and former teammates. Uh, It's just really cool. Definitely one I'll never forget. Absolutely. And when you were traded to the Yankees, it was uh, December 8th in 2009. One, did you know it was coming? And two, I'm I'm looking at this now. And I didn't realize it was a three team trade, yeah. and uh, Max Scherzer goes back to Detroit. Yeah. I, I didn't know that, but uh, how was how how did you feel being traded for the first time? I didn't know what was going on. I had been rumored in trades the few years prior, and kind of got myself worked up, like, oh my gosh, they said I'm I'm a potential trade person. It never happened. So then I'm starting to hear rumblings of this particular trade. I'm like, ah, nothing's gonna happen. And I was actually furniture shopping when the deal actually went through. So I left my phone in the car for some reason. I'm not sure why, but I come back and I got 30, 40 messages, and I'm like, oh, what just happened? So I still don't believe it's true at the time because I haven't heard from my agent. I haven't heard from the Yankees. I haven't heard from the Tigers. So this is just still just rumor. And then by the time I get home, I get situated. I get a call from the Yankees, I think first, then my agent, then the Tigers. So I was like, all right, this is true now. And it it ends up happening. And what's so unique about that trade, as you mentioned, three different teams and Edwin Jackson, Max Scherzer and myself were all still playing 10 years later after the trade, which is so crazy that so many pieces moved and so many pieces were still impacting. Edwin Jackson throws a no-hitter, pitches for Team USA, gets a silver medal. Max Scherzer is going to be a future Hall of Famer. I got a chance to play for the Yankees and continue to play for a long time after that. And there were other names involved. I think Ian Kennedy was involved. Ian Kennedy. Uh, Austin, Austin Jackson, Jackson. Yep. you know, um, just just really cool. The the number of players that moved and it worked for almost all everybody involved. Like very rare does that happen. So 
Um, I, I wasn't sure how to take it because, you know, being a tiger, we were we were coming into our own. We were starting it good. We had gone to the World Series in 06. We had just played game 163 that 09 season. If we won, we would have played the Yankees the first round. And it would have been really cool. Edwin Jackson versus CC Sabathia would have been game one, which would have been so cool. But we couldn't mm-hmm. hold off the Twins in game 163, which is one of my favorite games, even though we lost. We can talk about that later. But it's mm-hmm. one of my favorite games of all time. And now, prior to that, everything is all, well, you're good, but you haven't beat the Boston or the Yankees yet. That was who you were always compared to, whether it was the media, whether it was the fan base, whether it was the players, whether it was the history. You have to do that first. And they're just always just so much higher up. There's the Yankee way and how they do things. So this is almost like the the fairy tale. I've heard about it. I've read it. I've been close, but I haven't touched it yet. I haven't seen it. This A lot of the stuff they're saying is just so mythical. It can't exist. And now I'm there. And I'm like, uh-oh. Like, like, do I have to change how I, I look, how I present myself, how I go about business, how I do all these different things? So I was really nervous right away. But the the organization did a great job, uh, especially Derek Jeter. You know, I tip my hat to him because he had so many teammates throughout the course of his career. And the way he treated us all with respect, introducing himself, making himself available and approachable if need be. And if you think about it, I mean, he easily could have not. Because you're not going to be here long. We just called you up. We just traded for you. I've seen this story happen. But he has still somebody I still communicate with to this day. And it was those types of things that helped make the transition to not only New York, but the Yankees that much easier than I had anticipated and was so worried about prior to. But it was uh, shocking when it happened. I was trying to figure like, can I reverse this? Like, can I, can I, do I have a no trade clause as, as a young player? <laughs> and, um, and sure enough, it ends, it ends up being, you know, just a really cool thing to happen as a part of my career. And, and your decision after uh, the Yankee uh, experience to sign with the Mets. Now, didn't I think some Yankee fans might have gotten a little ticked off about uh, a press conference? <laughs> you said you want to explain that because I know you explained it at the uh, Hall of Fame, but uh, you know people should hear about what what really meant there. And you know how how you know anytime you have you know the the media, especially you know at that time it was more papers. Now it's more you know digital, but it's still a headline, right? So I didn't know at the time. I've learned this throughout the course of my career. You two may interview me. We may talk about some. Hey, what's your favorite pizza? I like pepperoni. Great. But you two aren't the ones that are actually going to write the headline. Someone else actually writes the headline. And the headline, they're going to grab whatever piece makes the best thing to get the eyeballs on, right? So in the interview, I think it was with, I'm not sure if it was with Mike Puma or whoever it was. Everything is quoted exactly the way I said it. But everything that's on top that ended up going out is where people have taken it and misquoted it and been upset with nice. me for what I had said. So playing in New York, I, I as a Tiger, I had started to meet some people from New York that you know, I had to go to dinner with, I'd hang out with. And they were the ones that kept saying it, that, you know, you know, true New Yorkers are Mets fans. And I was like, you know, I'm just in town. And at that time, we're only playing the Yankees. I had only played against the Mets once, and that was in 2007. They had come to us in Detroit. I had, hadn't had gone to Shea, and then my first time at City was as a Yankee. 
So that, that's all I knew about the Mets. And obviously I had watched the Yankees growing up. And of course, you know, certain players and things like that. Yeah. I had known. So now I get this opportunity to talk about it. I said, hey, you know, I'd heard from a lot of people, which I had because I'd been hearing it consistently, that true New Yorkers are Mets fans. And I'm excited to see if that's true. And the number of people that come up to me that said, you said real New Yorkers are Mets fans. And, you know, you're not from New York if you're not a Mets fan. I was like, no, I didn't say any of that stuff. <laughs> I, I said something close, but it wasn't exactly that. So if you would have heard exactly what I said and repeated it, you still might have been upset. And I don't blame you for that, because obviously, you know, if you are a diehard fan of one, there's no way you <laughs> could be a fan of the other and say that that's one way. So I totally get it. However, I also have some friends that have traveled to New York um, that aren't from there, that are from other countries and from other parts of the, you know, the states. And one of the first things they do is buy a Yankee hat. And I remember seeing this is multiple people that came to me. Look, I bought a New York hat. I said, no, it's a Yankee hat. Go, oh, OK. And then they just went about their business. Now, this speaks volumes to what the New York Yankees organization is as a tradition mm-hmm. in that history, because it just just goes. I mean, you see the Yankees in movies and TV shows. And even as an ambassador, when I traveled across the world, I'd have people come up to me and say, I don't know baseball, but aren't the Yankees a team? So that speaks volume to the just what they've been able to accomplish. However, on the flip side, there's people that go, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I don't know anything about the Yankees. I don't know anything about baseball, but this is a New York thing, just like the I love New York t-shirt and the apple, Mm -hmm. New York slice of pizza and a bagel. That's what I do. I just had the true New York experience. So there are some parts of that. And then if you flip it, if you see somebody and they have blue and orange and they have that NY, that's not by mistake. (laughs) <laughs> that has purposely purchased. Their family has brought them up in it. They've been in it. They they they've struggled through the good times and the bad times, and they are true Mets fan. This isn't. A, oh, this looks cute. I'm just going to go ahead and buy this. This is a no. I'm I'm a Mets fan. That's the reason why I got it. This is nothing against the Yankee fans. I had four solid years with the Yankees. Sure, I had sure. Almost four years with the Mets. I enjoyed both sides of it. You know. I, I, the one regret I said, I wish I would have bought something. I spent eight years in New York and only rented the whole time because I didn't know I was going to be there that long. <laughs> if you had bought something when you first came to the Yankees and then sold it when you left the Mets, oh, you, I would, you have would, have you would have made a killing. I might have had my own show, you know, (laughs) like buying New York. I would have been one of those top realtors out there, not knowing what I'm doing, but I'd have been giving a ton of advice to future Yankees and Mets players and fans of like saying, buy here, buy there. And this is good. (laughs) Perfect. Curtis, you, you know, one of the things when at the, at the New York state hall of fame dinner that I don't know if you were aware of people, you probably, you know, you have an image of being just a great guy, you know, with with your charitable work and just always as a player, you know, you are someone you never hear anything negative about. It's just it's a wonderful thing at the dinner. People would, oh, you know, Curtis Granderson, he's one of the greatest guys. And that's got to feel great. And you win the the Marvin Miller Man of the Year Award four times, the Roberto Clemente Award. Those awards, how how do those compare to your baseball career? Those are awesome. First, with the Marvin Miller Man of the Year Award, you know those are voted on by my peers. So the fact that the people I played with and played against felt that 
to not only do it once, but multiple times. Four times. <laughs> you know, in that category. I mean, I've always looked at myself as, yeah, baseball is what I do. It's not who I am. And it doesn't make me any better or worse than anybody else. You know, I've given the opportunity to communicate and talk. Let's talk. And hopefully there's some things we can connect on and have a good conversation, just like we're doing right now. Now, there are going to be some times, you know, where, you know, you get a little upset, you know, you get after with some people like, you know, for example, you know, you talked about the the New York State Hall of Fame event, and there were so many just great fans and people that support that event that were there that had either bought a table or came to see, you know, somebody they know get inducted. And, you know, whenever I got asked to take a photo or sign an autograph, I, I try my best to do as much as I can mm-hmm. while we were in there. But then you also have some people that, hey, I'm going to come here and show up and, you know, want to also take advantage of these same perks because I know you're there. And for these individuals, I said, hey, I'll take a picture. I may not sign for you. And, and people are, are are trying to understand why. I said, you have Rennie LaRue who put on this amazing event that you know about. You could have bought a ticket to support and you chose not to. All those people inside came and supported this great event. Anybody in there that wants to ask for a photo, an autograph, a video, or this, count me and I'm in. But this was strategic that, and this isn't just these individuals. I've seen this happen in a couple of times. So there's times where, you know, Rennie's not going to have a chance to, to, to know this or defend himself on this. But, you know, you try to stand up where you can on that stuff. I still gave him a photo, right? An autograph isn't, is, isn't, it's an obligation, right? It's no guarantee. You may meet somebody, you know, your favorite superstar. That person could say no, right? But the reason I, you know, I do it in these certain things is because of what's happening in there, right? If, if you come and support this amazing thing, it allows it to happen next year. It allows other great players to come next year, other great people to attend. And correct me if I'm wrong, you know, it's, it's somewhat affordable. This isn't the, you know, the most exclusive hardest ticket in town to get Mm -hmm. so if you want to be a part you can so there's things like that where i where i also have to you know stand up where i can for the people that i think you know deserve it and it's all those different things whether it's somebody mentoring me i get a chance to mentor somebody else meeting that fan that happens to wear my shirt or my jersey or wears the number because of me and try my best to communicate as much as I can say hello, sign an autograph, take a picture. And oh yeah, I got to go play. I got to go get my bat and the game's about to start in two minutes. But it's, it's all those different things. And on the few occasions where it doesn't happen, there's always a reason behind it. It's never a, you know what, I'm just going to be, you know, you know, a prick to this person and say, no, no, there's, there's, there's that, you know, it's those different things, but when given an opportunity and I've seen the response from individuals, when you just say hello and you're nice to them and courteous to them, because you, you can choose to do that or you can choose to be mean. And I've had a lot of people that chose to be nice and courteous to me. And I want to return that favor back. And I remember having, uh, we did an autograph signing in Detroit one year and the way the autograph signings typically work, <clears throat> you usually have a table that's in front of you. You have your, your pens and markers. They're all set up. There's usually somebody that's running the event that's like ushering the people in that have either purchased a ticket or have an item or, you know, maybe it's a free um, signing thing and they're coming this way to come towards you. So I see the line, but I'm not paying attention to because I'm trying to get situated. There's blue markers and black markers and silver markers and gold markers and all these different things. And I look up, we're ready to start. And there's a girl and she's probably about 10 years old. 
and she starts crying right away. And I was like, what, what, what's wrong? What did I do? Did I say something? Did I step on your foot? What, what happened? She goes, no, my parents told me I was going to meet you and I didn't believe them. And here you are. Mm-hmm. And I go, wow. wow. Like I stood up, I gave her a hug. And then on top of that, she, she had something for me to sign. I, don't, I have no idea what it was she wanted me to sign, but then she gave me something. She goes, Hey, I have a dance recital tonight. If you get out of here in time and can make it, I'd love for you to come. So oh. yeah, that I'm going to try my best. I'm not sure what time I'm finishing up. And unfortunately we went longer, mm-hmm. but it's, it's those interactions that, okay. I never, I may never see this person ever again, but you know, having that ability just to say hello, be nice to that person, uh, be genuine with that person, you know, is what that Marvin Miller man of the year and the Roberto Clemente means, because again, we, we are baseball players, but we're more than just baseball players. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with my parents being teachers, I saw that. I saw the way they treated people. I saw the way people responded to them. And it was just something that I guess was passed on to me. I didn't realize what they were doing was called giving back, but I just thought that's just how you treated other people. And that ended up just being a part of me and still is to this day. Well, Curtis, that, that, yeah. that was great. Yes. I know we've we've taken a lot of your time and we appreciate it. There's two more questions. One sure. uh, just came to me. Uh, it, why was game 163 your favorite? You said you tell us. Yeah. <laughs> so we, what was that? It was 2009. We're in first place in the American League Central. I think we are two or three games up on the Minnesota Twins. All we have to do is beat the last place Kansas City Royals in a weekend series one time and we win the division. Then we host at home and we would have either played. uh, I'm not sure who we would have played, but we would have been the host team. We would have played it. Actually, no, no, I'm sorry. I got my playoffs mixed up. That's the 2006 playoffs, 2009 playoffs. Somehow we end up tied at the end of the year. I I forgot how we ended up tied, but it's us in Minnesota. We end up tied at the end of the year. We're going to play game 163, which is going to be Monday in Minnesota at the Metrodome. Brett Favre had just signed with the Vikings. So now this is big game that's happening Monday night where it's Brett Favre and the Vikings versus the Packers. And it's happening in the Metrodome. So they bump our game, game 163, from Monday to Tuesday. Now, whenever they play a football game in the Metrodome, there's more seating. So say baseball Metrodome holds 40,000 for football. It holds almost up to 60 or 70,000. They can reconfigure it and keep some more of those seats, which they did for game 163. The story gets even more fun because the night before we're in town when we should be playing, we're watching the Monday night football game. We go out to eat and we go to this restaurant. I think it's called Seven. It's downtown Minneapolis. And it's a place where we'd frequent a lot. Really good food. Uh, could get, you know, a little later evening type, you know, enjoyment as well, where the music gets going, all that good stuff. So we're in there eating. It's Marcus Timms. It's Edwin Jackson and myself. And we're sitting there at the table. And I've never seen this. I've only heard of it happening. I've never seen this happen. We order our meals. And here come to the table two bottles of vodka free on the house here you go boys this is free you all we're all looking at it and we're like we've been to this place a lot of times some of us have enjoyed some vodka we've had to pay every time right now they're giving it to us for free and we can't touch it <laughs> so we have brand new shiny bottles of vodka sitting on the table 
And it's like that kid where they say, don't touch it. And you're looking at it and you go, okay, all right, let's eat our meal. Let's get out of here. So we get out of here. We go home. We get ready to play the game. And it is back and forth. Good things are happening. Bad things are happening. One team goes up to the next team ties it. The next team goes up and ties it. One player loses a ball in the Metrodome. I get doubled off at first base. I remember being at first base. We It's first and third. And Placido Polanco, one of the best two hitters I've ever played with, is batting. The, the momentum has shifted. Michael Kadire is playing first base, who I ended up playing with with the Mets. And he goes, hey, congrats. You know, go get the Yankees um, next game. You guys are going to get us here because Polanco's going to get a hit. We're going to score a run. We're going to score another run. Polanco, boom, hot line drive shot to the shortstop. I get too far off my lead. They double me up. Inning over. We score no runs. The momentum has shifted again. We're like, what's going on here? So at one point, I'm in center field. And remember, there's more people there now than a normal baseball game. A pitching change happens. The place is rocking. And I'm standing with my glove on my hip, just the relaxed position like I've, I've done throughout the course of my career. And I can feel the base in my glove. It's just like I'm carrying some speakers. And it's just wow. boom, 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 boom. I was like, what is going on here? So all that ends up happening. And, you know, unfortunately, we end up losing Carlos Gomez ends up being a Met. I've never seen anybody run as fast as I have seen him run the score that game winning run. He comes around second, third base ends up scoring and they end up winning to beat us. But just all of that that led into it made it the most just exciting game that I was ever a part of. Even though I was on the losing side of it, it was just so cool to have had that experience. Yeah, sound like a great, great game. Uh, final question, and I, you know, thank you for your time. Tell us about your grandkids foundation and how anybody can help. So the Grandkids Foundation was started in 2007 when I was playing in Detroit. At that time, the high school graduation rate in the city of Detroit was only at 50%. And as I mentioned, my parents are educators. My sister currently teaches at Jackson State University. And at the time, I was one of a handful of major league players with a college degree. So I knew the importance of education, and I really wanted to try to use baseball as my platform to show the importance of that to the students that I got a chance to interact with. Fast forward, we got a chance to partner with Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign to help fight childhood obesity. My parents are from Mississippi, which at the time was one of the most obese states in the U.S. So that was near and dear to me. And then we were able to start getting involved with food insecurity, trying to help families and individuals who don't know where their next meal is coming from. That has since now, we just wrapped up our 10th year of what's called Grand Giving, which happens throughout the month of November, where you can donate and the proceeds go to the Greater Chicago Food Depository and the Northern Illinois Food Bank. But we've also been able to donate funds throughout the country, depending on what's going on. The most recent hurricane that happened to Fort Myers, we partnered with the food bank down there. When one of the hurricanes hit Houston, we partnered with a food bank down there. So whenever different things are going on, and we did stuff with Hurricane Sandy in New York when that came through and unfortunately did what it did. So 
there's been different ways where we've been able to connect, although Chicago is home for me. You know, we try to have, you know, some touch points in different places where I've either played or where there's places that we can help out. And for anyone that would love to help, you can go to grandgiving.org. You can donate all year long, but November is our big time of the year where we have our big focus. It's right before the holidays. It's before everybody has bought all their gifts and presents. So we luck out and time out really well uh, to be in that time. So grandgiving.org. Thank you. Great foundation. Great, great cause. Thank you very much. Curtis, we can go on forever. Thank you so much. I mean, you know what? When I watched you play, you were always giving fist bumps to kids, you know, down there. That was, you know, that's just so great. And, you know, you're definitely one of the greatest, greatest ball players, you know, to, to play because you're just so, so good. So good. So thank you very much. Everyone always be like, hey, aren't you losing focus? Like, no, like that's part of my focus. Like, I still consider myself a big kid. Like, all these fans are in the stadium. If I go wave to one fan or give one a fist bump or give them some gum or take some gum, whatever it happens to be, I mean, it's just part of the game. Once it's time for me to get in the batter's box, I'm going to lock myself in and get myself ready to go. Um, I know this might be a little out of character. I know you all are asking questions of me, but I got to ask a question for you all. We talked about baseball and barbecue. You know, where, 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 where's the food or, where, you know, where's the hype on the barbecue <laughs> side of things? You know, anything that we need to be discussing or some places I need to check that I have not been to. Oh, wow. Well, well, well you've been to Kansas City, so, you know, you yeah. went to Arthur Bryant's there. So that's uh, Jack, Jack Stacks is a great place in Kansas City. Uh, you know, so obviously Kansas City is the Mecca. But there's always great barbecue restaurants around, and even here in New York. Yeah. And you're in Chicago, right? Chicago yeah. has, uh, we have, uh, was it? Milk's. Uh, Milk's yeah. Barbecue for the Perplexed. It's near near Wrigley Field. What's the name of it? Milt's Barbecue it, for the Perplexed. M-I-L-T? Yes. Milt's. Yeah. Okay, I have not yeah. been there. Yeah. Chef Chicago Brian Rica. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, and he's a, they're big baseball, they baseball have a big fans, baseball yeah. theme. And Collections, yeah. yeah. Perfect. I will yeah. definitely check it. You know, I, I usually end up somewhere near Wrigley at some point throughout the course of the year. And a lot of times it's not even to watch a baseball game, but I have friends that have owned bars up there. And uh, one works at Rizzo's, uh, one worked at, uh, was part owner of Country Club. There's Houndstooth and all those different bars right there. But all the time I haven't been got the barbecue. So now we're good. Now, now this interview is complete. <laughs> well, you know, in in New York, I mean, in in Brooklyn, you've got um, oh, uh, uh Bill Dur- Billy Durney, Homestead, 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 right, right. Homestead in 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 uh, right. That's in Brooklyn. Of course, I'm drawing a blank, but I know it's Billy Durney. That yeah, Mor- uh, Morgan's in Brooklyn as well. Yeah, right, Morgan's, and of course. You know, there's always Jeff's house when you're, oh, when yeah. you're on Long Island. <laughs> you we, yeah, yeah, you know? you're welcome here anytime. Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So now we're good. You know, food is my thing. You know, I, All right. eat. I consider myself a big kid and uh, just enjoy, you know, good food when getting the opportunity. And that was one of my favorite things about, about playing is just traveling to all the different cities and countries and exploring their food culture scene you know you can always get the the staple restaurants everywhere uh you know and baseball was always capitol grill or ruth chris yeah. or Steakhouse. Sure. and those are great but you know to be like you said in kansas city um and I'll, I'll leave you guys with this when i was with the blue jays we had a four game set there and i my mind just goes to all these different places so i go you know what we're here for four days. I need to go to a barbecue place each day while I'm here. So the first day, <clears throat> we end up going to uh, 
Casey Joe's, the one in the in the gas station. Right. right. They're mm-hmm. early, 10 o'clock go. And I'm not just gonna like sample. Like I'm I'm eating, I'm giving me a couple slabs, you know, a couple rib bones, some tips, some some oh, yeah. man, some beans, some mac and cheese, all that good stuff. So we do that and then we end up winning. So everyone's like, well, we gotta do that again tomorrow. So we end up going to uh, I think it was Q39, I think is the name of it. Okay. There we win again. All right, we gotta go again. Now at this point, all we're doing is eating barbecue. And we got no vegetables. We're not hydrating. It's the middle of the summer. We're sitting there like in the meat sweats and coma, but it's working. So we got to keep going. So then we get gates and then we get some more barbecue. And then the last day of the trip on getaway day, mind you, four days in a row, we've had barbecue at 11 o'clock every day, gone out there and played. It's our last game. The clubhouse serves us more barbecue before we get <laughs> So, oh. as you can see, I've enjoyed my barbecue and enjoyed oh. my time going to KC, not only for the museum, but for the food as well. Well, you know, yeah. it's Curtis, it's funny because when the first time we had Bob Kendrick on, you know, we're like, well, he's from Kansas City. So we've got to ask about barbecue. And I, I think I asked him, I said, do you like to barbecue? And he said, and think about Bob saying this. He said, when you live in Kansas City, you don't need to barbecue. That's and- true. That is true. <laughs> I'd rather just eat. Invite me over when it's done. You know, I'm that's patient, right. but at the same time, you know, doing ribs for six, seven, eight hours. That's not my thing. Just let me go ahead and eat and get my fingers all sticky and all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Curtis, you've been terrific. Yeah, we, we're so happy much. that you... Wow, you yeah. you deserve everything. The the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame is lucky to have you as it, its newest member. And uh, we're we're lucky that you joined us on Baseball and Barbecue. Uh, appreciate it. Thank Thanks you very much. Having, hope you all have an amazing 2024. And we'll hopefully have a few more new barbecue places to talk about here next time. There you go. That'd be hey, great. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Have a good one. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast. And if you like barbecue and you like baseball, then you have to listen to Baseball and BBQ with Jeff and Len. They always have the best guests from the world of baseball and the world of barbecue, all in one little package. So check it out. Baseball and BBQ with Len and Jeff. Okay, guys, take it away. Thank you, Grandy Man, for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. I mean, is there a better person than Curtis Granderson? No, there there isn't. It, it's what I loved, and and I mentioned it in the interview. Is we didn't even get to talking about his baseball career till we were into the interview. You know, there's just so much to him. And actually, when we finished the interview, when we started talking about food, we could have gone on and on and on with that. Yeah. He's Maybe we'll a, have him back. He's a terrific, terrific guy. Have him back just to talk about food. Exactly. Right? Yep. You know what, Jeff? Baseball season, baseball season, grilling season, barbecue season is getting here quickly. The weather is changing. People want to be outside. And you don't want to be outside with just some crappy grilling tools. You want the best. Go to BaseballBBQ.com for grilling tools that have baseball bat-shaped handles and home plate-shaped cutting boards and on and on. Just go to BaseballBBQ.com. You will not be sorry. 
And you know, Len, and after after I tell everybody how to contact us, we do have a pet peeve. And you know how that pet peeve came in here? Through our phone line, which is 516-855-8214. Give us a call, and we'll put you on the podcast. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. Leave a message there, Baseball and BBQ. On X, at Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecues all spelled out. Our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, all that stuff. And we're on all your podcast apps. Leonard, who do we got coming up on this pet peeve? Uh, we have fan of the show, Chris Gallagher. She's she's a little peeved. She's yeah. got a pet peeve. Yeah, I think we started. I think Anthony Morosco, our friend, started a, a little bit of a trend. Oh, you, you never know. There's a lot of people with pet peeves. She's just one. So let's hear what she has to say. Hello, this message is for Jeff and Len. This is Chris Gallagher. I am calling your show. I have a pet peeve. I love the pet peeve from last week about parking. Yes, City Field parking is so expensive that the only games I really go to are day games because I could take mass transit. It is so much cheaper than tolls and parking coming from New Jersey. But my pet peeve actually has to do with the neighborhood around City Field or lack of a neighborhood. Thankfully, the chop shops are all starting to disappear. But unlike some places like Wrigley Field, Fenway Park, or Camden Yards, which have bars, restaurants, hotels, and wonderful places to hang out around the stadium, City Field right now has squat. They have nada. They have zippo. It sucks. The only uh, hotel that's nearby now houses homeless people, the former Holiday Inn, LaGuardia. They had an amazing restaurant called The Pine. That's gone, too. There's really nowhere for fans to hang out outside a city field except for tailgate parties. No shops, bars, restaurants, hotels, nothing. I know Steve Cohen is going to put something in, but uh, hopefully I'll be alive when that happens. I'm already about to be 60 soon, so hopefully I'll be alive when all that happens. But right now, it's the game or nothing. So I hope you enjoy my little pet peeve slash rant. Uh, use it in the show however you want. You guys are wonderful. You do a great job. And hopefully I'll see both of you in real life pretty soon. Bye. You know, Len, I think she's right. There is nothing around City Field. I mean, there there is one bar, one corner, and they have the K Corner, which is an expensive restaurant uh, if you want to go in before and after. But there's really nothing to do around that neighborhood. And they finally, I know they're going to be building it up, but who knows how long that's going to take? You know, with the construction delays and, and New York City and all that stuff. So who knows? It's hard to believe that all these years, all these years later, and it's still, it's still not built up. Right. But you know what? She said something quite important that I hope people didn't miss in that pet peeve. What was that? It's going to be her birthday. She's going to be 60. So oh, okay. happy birthday whenever... Uh, when when that happens, happy birthday. And thank you for the pet peeve. Yes. So, Leonard, Jeff, what's coming up? Well, we've got one other thing. One other thing that guests, guests, our listeners have grown accustomed to. Let's do it. Barbecue quote of the week. Barbecue is a testament to the power of simplicity. 
And that was said by Stephen Reichlin, oh. a, a former baseball and barbecue guest. Yeah. Who's the current baseball and barbecue guest? I'm so excited for this, Jeff, because we have Mike Erickson, high school barbecue. You're going to love hearing about this. There's so much you're going to want to hear about it. You're going to want to become involved in it. And Doug Scheiding is with us. He adds his own special flair to the interview. So we have Mike Erickson with Doug Scheiding. Hope everybody enjoys. There are some in competitive barbecue that say the sport is dying out, but that's not happening in Texas. And it's certainly not happening with high schools in Texas. Texas, where football used to be king, is being threatened. Threatened by high school barbecue. It's going to become bigger. Mark my words. And the man that we have with us tonight is going to help that happen. He is involved with Texas barbecue, with Texas high school barbecue. We're going to learn all about how high school students are competing in barbecue competitions. And that is Mike Erickson. Mike, we welcome you to Baseball and Barbecue. And joining us with Mike is another Texas. We are inundated with Texans tonight. Texas is in the house. We have Doug. He's gone rogue shiding. So we are, we're, we're thrilled that you're both with us. But Mike, you are the guest. Doug, you're the guest co-host. So you get to open with the first question. Awesome. First pitch. So, uh, Mike, I want to start at the beginning for you and your decision to go the culinary path into Hyde Park CIA, which is considered kind of the best uh, culinary education by many people. So um, how did you come to that decision? Well, I hate to say it. It was an accident, and it it happened to involve an Italian girl. Uh, I was in Orlando, Florida, and uh, working at Walt Disney World in the Magic Kingdom, and met a young lady and was in love and uh, followed her up to Torrington, Connecticut. And I lived in Torrington, Connecticut, and her mom was the senior vice president of uh, Barnes and Noble Construction and Design, and they were redesigning the CI bookstore. And she said, man, if you want to, because at the time I wanted to own a restaurant. I didn't want to be a chef. I didn't know anything about the culinary world or culinary schools. And she said, if you want to own a restaurant, you need to come check this school out. And I I went to school and I got to have lunch with uh, one of the certified master chefs. And he was the president at the time, Ferdinand Metz, and uh, just fell in love with it. If you've ever been to CIA, it's like the... Disney World, the culinary schools, it's the best culinary school in the world. And I mean, it changed my life. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got a CIA down here in San Antonio, so the Southwestern. So yeah, nothing like Hyde Park, I'm sure. But uh, El, El uh, Queen, San Antonio, it's a great campus. Yes. Yeah, we, so wait, is that the is that our CIA? The one that we have yeah, here? Affiliated. Yeah. Okay. All right. So yeah, that it it is it is a beautiful place. I love the uh I love the cafe there, the bakery that they have at the CIA. Yeah. And I got it. to go through all those classes and prepare food and all those. And you know, it was a once in a lifetime. Obviously the, the girl dumped me, but uh everything happens for a reason and I got one of the best educations and ended up having when it was all said and done, four certified master chefs as teachers, and uh, one of them at the time, Stephen Junta, is now a CMC, and he actually works for Cargill Meats, which is just kind of ironic. That, uh, and then I worked with the only female master chef, Lyde Birkenkuch, and she was a very large lady, German, taught 
charcuterie and meats and jerky and sausage and I mean, just the time of my life, little did I know that it was going to come full circle back to this and barbecuing with kids. Take us, uh, how does that happen? That's really, you go from that and yeah, I don't think there, there's got to be something in between poaching kids and barbecue. What, what exactly uh, was next after that? And that, how do you end up in Texas? Well, I, I'm a Texas, Texan born and raised basically you know, here in Texas, we, we grow up, everybody knows how to cook a brisket, but not competition brisket. And I got back from New York, and unfortunately, I kept, I had to come home after I graduated from Johnson & Wales and Providence. And my mom had cancer and came back home and uh, started just cooking and working in restaurants and fell into all different kinds of things. But long story short, I went on a, a pasture-to-plate uh, tour with 27 chefs to Kansas, and we were learning about the cattle industry and and ranching and farming and where your food comes from. And it was a light bulb sitting there going, okay, I just paid a, quite a bit of money and went to the best school in the whole world. And we never, and this was before the whole farm to table movement in New York. It was before Larry Forgione and, and all the stuff that's happening up in the Hyde Park area. And uh, so we didn't leave campus and we didn't really have an on-campus garden or didn't have, you know, cattle up there or goats or pigs or anything. And it just kind of inspired me that, wow, I'm a Texan and I've never been to a live ranch and 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 touched a live animal. We went to a place called Gardner Angus Ranch, and it was probably one of the best seed stock operations in the in the country uh, and just amazing animals and amazing meat and just really got the bug. And, you know, obviously I, I'm a meat eater, have been since little, and there's a lot of other things. I was a Boy Scout and Eagle Scout, so we did a lot of live fire cooking when I was little just kind of led back to I'm a teacher in a classroom. And at the time, you know, I was teaching high school and I like, this would be an awesome experience for kids. So we literally spent a year on a yellow school bus and went all over Texas and learned about the cattle industry in Texas. We worked, got to work with Aaron Franklin. We worked with a a chef uh, that basically taught him how to make sausage. We went to butcher shops, you name it. It was just one big meat, meat trip. And we recorded the whole thing and had a film crew come with us and uh, a filmmaker, a maker named David. uh, And he basically created a documentary film out of it so that it could be reused and partnership with our school district and the Texas Beef Council so that we could share it with other kids all over the country and other classrooms and other chefs. And then, you know, I'm still teaching. I've been teaching for 24 years in the classroom and at my last high school, right across the hall is the welding and ag shop. And they're building these massive barbecue smokers in class and not cooking on them. And my daughter at the time was a junior and she was the president of the FFA. And at that time, we only had four pigs. Senior year, we had eight pigs. And it just led to a local. uh, This all started at Vernon High School where I was a teacher. We started with seven teams locally and it's grown all over the state of Texas. We now have it in Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, Florida. We're adding three new states next year, and I've talked to about half a dozen other ones that are interested. And it's really just getting kids engaged. And, yeah, it's barbecue, but it's also a lot more. And Doug could probably tell you all the things he's learned over his career as an adult doing competition barbecue. But these are anywhere from 10 to 18-year-old kids doing it. And they really don't realize all the things they're learning and the life lessons that are pretty cool. I mean, it's just – and it was all an accident. 
And, and I say I give glory to God because God kind of led me down this path. And my whole life has kind of led to this moment and all these experiences just kind of work together. But, uh, you know, in the end, getting to serve and serve kids and serve schools and serve a community. And now we've met people like you. And uh, I mean, the amount of people, and I was reading some of the things that you guys do in the barbecue and the baseball world. We had some of the biggest names of barbecue coming to Burnett, Texas. We had Stephen Reichlin, the author of the barbecue Bible. We had um, Melissa Cookson. We had Louis Mueller, uh, er Ernie Segovia, uh, Ernest Cervantes. They all came to basically see what we were doing. And some of them, uh, Chris Marks with Three Little Pigs that was just on your show, Mark Lambert with uh, Sweet Swine Mine. And these are all a lot of them adult males that are given their time to, to mentor kids. And that's a big need right now in schools across America because the dads are working full time or they're busy and they, they kind of check out when kids get to high school. But when you mention smoke and fire and barbecue and meats, all of a sudden the dads come out and they can bring their checkbooks and they can bring all their toys. And if they're like Doug and some of these other guys, they've got a lot of toys that they can share with their local community. And, and that's what education is all about. It should be a partnership. It should be a village helping to raise our kids and, you know, giving them a life skill. Now we're, we're connected with Operation Barbecue and Stan Hayes has had two kids that are competing. He's got his last child competing this year in our league. Last year we had Miss Tootsie, Tootsie Somersek, the queen of barbecue in Texas came and she's coaching the team at Giddings High School and was just walking around like no big deal, just like she's one of the normal people. And that's who she is. I mean, but we were starstruck and in awe just going, wow these are legends that are walking around with our kids and, and spending time in our communities teaching. And that year we actually had the governor of Texas mysteriously show up accidentally. Nobody still knows how he showed up, but he was there. That, and we had the first lady of Texas and we had the first lady of barbecue. Miss Tootsie at the same cookoff for a state championship, which was pretty special. That was that's fantastic. And I love the way you were saying how it, 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 it helps the kids you know to get together creativity compassion everything that that they get together and work together teamwork is fantastic and i want to know when did that light bulb moment go off when you had okay let's do a barbecue league i mean because i i thought fantastic idea and, and have everybody involved doing it so what when did that light bulb go off and you had that, that this this could be something big well, unfortunately, it was another accident because I tried to start a nonprofit and uh, put together a board and some friends and some people that I thought I could work with, and it just didn't work out. And uh, they ended up, uh, we parted ways, and they wanted to do something uh, different. And I had the decision to make to either quit and give up and just stop doing everything, or I had to come up with something new. And I couldn't quit because I have my teenage daughter going into college. I've got my wife that was part of it. And I'm not a quitter. And I basically said, OK, I've got to start all over and figure out, you know, what else is out there. And I started researching and uh, I've got a nephew that was doing uh, high school bass fishing and started researching high school bass fishing and high school rodeo. And, you know, the, the rodeo association is called the National High School Rodeo Association. So that's where the name came from, the National High School Barbecue Association and thought, you know, if we're going to do a league. Most of the things and the, the, the big inspiration, and I'll give credit to Randall Bowman in, in Georgia. Randall and I had some conversations and kind of started going down the path of Little League Baseball and saying, look, you know, we could have grassroots clubs and teams all over America doing this in the backyard. And 
And I got it because I grew up in Boy Scouts and went all the way to Eagle Scout and did a lot of camping and live fire cooking. And then I was a soccer player. So I was a part of a club and I traveled all over the country. And I was actually on a national team that went to Europe and uh, played for the All-Stars and played in high school. And so it just kind of made sense that, hey, this could be a sport. And, you know, Mike McLeod has done some things recently where he's kind of dedicated the word food sport. And we kind of piggyback on that to say, look, okay, we're going to be high school food sport. And uh, there's kids out there that aren't tall and aren't fast and aren't straight A students, but they're looking to be part of a team and they're lo- looking to serve their campus. And they're looking to a lot of small communities are struggling with finances and money. And this was a built in, uh, you know, when we started it to begin with, the whole purpose was to raise money so I could cook more meat with my kids because I'm a chef and a culinary arts teacher and our budgets don't afford prime rib and brisket and all these ribs and whatnot. The joke in the culinary classroom is it's chicken, 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 chicken in a lot of parts of the country, unless you're like East coast and you can get Maine lobsters and some of the the cool stuff like that. But uh, it was just out of necessity and it was an accident. And I was doing my job as a teacher trying to figure out how can I raise money? How can I get my kids excited about learning? How can I engage my community and it really turned into the holy trinity of, I mean, I've had businesses come out. I mean, we've got, we're now partnered with B&B Charcoal. Uh, we're partnered with one of the largest knife makers in the in the country, Zerling Hinkle. And they're giving knife kits to our kids. And uh, Huntsacre Smokers is doing a lot of stuff with us with their barrel smokers. So it's brought a lot of partnerships and a lot of adults. Uh, recently, IC Tech just signed up with us. And we're going to offer IC Tech coolers to the kids as prizes. So in the end, everything I do is to get opportunities for kids. That's my job as a teacher. I've been doing it for 24 years, and I love what I do, but the league really transformed into I've got four years until I retire, and I don't know who told me. It was probably my mom and probably other parents, but you know, find something that you love and all your passions together, and you'll never be unhappy. And being able to do barbecue and working with kids and working with farmers and ranchers and working with very – unique people all over the country. I mean, that's a dream, man. I don't feel like I'm working. I'm doing it for free. It's a volunteer deal. I mean, making money is not on my radar right now. It's just growing this thing and seeing where it goes. And uh, it's been pretty amazing. And I'll, I'll give the stakeoff guys, Brett and uh, his partner prop, because I kind of saw what they did. And here's two guys that started in Texas to start a national and international state cook-off league that they're doing in Jamaica and all over the country. Well, if those two guys can do that with steaks, why can't a guy like me do it with live fire cooking? And, and so we incorporated steaks and our model is really three different things. We do grilling, a lot of SCA style grilling. We do Dutch oven. I've actually done some Dutch oven cooking and won the Cheyenne Ro- uh, rodeo uh, frontier day cook-off and got a big old belt buckle and, a local cook-off with a friend of mine that owns a, a pretty amazing 1800 chuck wagon. And so that inspired the Dutch oven and then the, the Boy Scout, Eagle Scout days, bring, bringing back cooking over a live fire. And then the barbecue, the staples being, you know, ribs and then chicken. And uh, obviously KCBS does thighs. Texas does a lot of uh, half chickens or, and next year we're going to lollipops. So uh, we're changing things up every year. So if a kid cooks for us with us from middle school to high school, they're learning all different cooking methods, all different meats, all different techniques. 
And now they're dangerous. Now they can get out and go cook with you guys and hopefully someday be like Doug and win in the Houston Rodeo or one of those big cook-offs. Yes, de- definitely. Uh, um, I mean, they get to eat their homework, which is great. Uh, you know, everybody <laughs> should go to their website, the high school com, and it's so much information on there. I'm looking at it right now, and I love this 10 C's of barbecue. Critical thinking, cooking, creativity, communication, collaboration, citizenship, character, commitment, craving, and consumption because they get to eat their homework. That, that, did you come up with that? Because that's fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've developed a lot of the stuff, and that was, you know, our focus was on education. So really trying to, to look at what are they going to get out of it? What are they going to learn? And I've been – a tagline, come eat our homework, has just been my tagline for probably about eight years since I've been teaching high school, and it just kind of worked, and uh, it just kind of organically grown. Now we've got a meat judging system. It's called the meat judging system. The M is for uh, mise en place, and in the culinary world, mise en place is everything in its place or the organizational part that a cook has to do before they go to the cook-off. Then eat, E for execution, A for appearance, and T for taste, you got meat. And we're judging meat with kids every single weekend all over Texas, and now we've got state champions starting starting up in Kansas and in Oklahoma and Florida and we're adding several other states. We're actually talking to somebody in New Jersey right now, and we've got some people that connected there. But, uh, you know, it's one day at a time, one cook-off at a time, and kind of like KCBS and a lot of these other organizations started, I mean, somebody had to take the, the driver's seat and somebody had to start it and someone had to, to steer. And I felt like God was leading me down that path and put me in a place where Hey, I've got a lot of people and network and friends that, you know, are seeing that this is working with kids and they're seeing how it's benefiting schools and campuses. And right now, education is in a crisis in America. There's a lot of challenges right now uh, in the schools. And the biggest one is funding. Where does their money come from? And if we're going to keep kids learning how to cook, which is a life skill, and I don't care, you know, nothing against any of the other sports, but. They're going to cook for the rest of their lives. They may not play the flute or the trumpet, or they may not be a defensive lineman or a running back forever. And this is something they'll be able to share with their kids and their community. And and that's the cool thing I like about Operation Barbecue and some of those organizations, Mercy Chef and the groups out there that go out and cook for people. We actually ended up cooking for Hurricane Katrina, a bunch of culinary teachers. And and they were talking about all the bass fishermen saving people off of their roofs during the flooding, but they didn't talk about any of the barbecue guys. And now they're starting to talk more and more about barbecue because of Stan and all of his partners and the guys that started that organization. And we're hoping we have kids that someday are going to, and I'm going to be one of those guys in four years where I'm going to be going and doing deployments, hopefully, and helping out however I can because, I mean, I'm still young and I've got the ability and the skill and being able to give back is a big part of what we want to do. Tell me a little bit about how one of the competition works and like how many high schools are currently involved in that so is it a once a year type thing or it's multiple and who kind of organizes it and does it shift from one high school to another so we we had a cook-off last weekend we've got 14 regional cook-offs this year in texas we've got a cook-off this next weekend in tyler and and east texas and all the events for fundraisers for those schools so 100 percent of the proceeds go directly back to that school district as the host so part of them hosting is to bring the other schools, just like high school football and high school baseball and everything, the, the schools travel to a different school. And then we have a state championship at the end of the year, May 3rd and 4th at Barnett High School, where it started. 
Uh, and then Nationals this year will be in Branson, Missouri for the first year. We'll be in Missouri for the next two years. So, uh, and it's all, I mean, we're working with teachers and schools. We're not, we don't work with barbecue promoters and nothing against them. But, you know, our focus and our mission is education in the classroom. It's about teachers. It's about giving back to local schools. So it impacts not only that school, but all those kids. And I'll give you an example at the school I'm at right now. Last year was my first year. I got $38,000 in grants. I've got a brand new wrap trailer called the Duck Brigade. I've got four Hunsaker smokers. Uh, a school board member donated their offset, and I'm getting ready to get a Old Hickory indoor CTO uh, smoker. And all of that is to be able to serve the campus so that I can provide 500-person banquet for you know, all the brisket or pulled pork or prime rib they need. And that's going to save the school district money and food costs. And also the parents love it because they're going to get a chef cooking it and kids in the culinary arts department working on it. So it really is a partnership. And uh, we don't do a lot of stuff. We don't work with any organization that has alcohol at it because we abide by all the campus guidelines, which is no firearms, no vaping, no alcohol. So that limits some of the places we can hold events because we really want to become a high school sport and make it to where it, it sustains itself and and it's here 100 years from now versus you know just being every now and then on the weekend we've got I mean, in texas alone between the two organizations and there's really another one that's kind of small that does more uh, uh, cook-offs on the weekends there's probably about 30 to 40 events in a school year for teams to go and choose from and then you add in Houston Rodeo, or, or the, I'm sorry, not Houston Rodeo, the San Antonio Rodeo, and there's a couple other smaller events. Uh, and now you've got the Rib Cook-Off Association and the State Cook-Off Association. All these groups are basically allowing venues for these kids to go cook and practice. And some of them can do it. Uh, we don't follow the model of cash prizes because it, it, it can do some problems with UIL in Texas and some athletics. They can't get cash prizes. So we just stick to trophies and ribbons and scholarships. We're uh, talking to Mike Erickson, who is the creative force behind the National High School Barbecue Association. Mike, we had a guest on who said um, they they love competing because, uh, you know, they don't care much about the money. They they care about the trophies and they were going to go to other uh, competitions because they wanted to get the belt buckle. I'm looking at your site and you have a beautiful belt buckle for the national champion. Uh, it is. Have you guys seen this? It's really, really nice. I would be proud to wear this. Of course I would. Well, and, you know. and that's all my daughter. Cause my daughter was a, an FFA president and she was a four time state uh, of Texas state champion in four different things. So she's got a collection of belt buckles from, pigs and all kinds of stuff and ironically at the school she was at her senior year she was on the meat judging team and the meat judging team learned all about cuts of meat and where they come from and all the animals and the following year she graduated she that team of kids won the state championship in meat judging she's now at texas a&m and uh, uh basically doing other things but uh Whoop. you know she was the one that said belt buckles were something they like so we, we do and we, we have all kinds of prizes. You know, I was telling the guys before we got on the call, we had a guy that just gave away $4,000 worth of electric scooters at our last cookoff. Really? Each student got a brand new 
electric scooter GoTrax, and GoTrax is now one of our national partners. And uh, so we're always looking for folks to, you know, anything we can do to give the kids an experience and give them something. It, it builds self-esteem. It builds character. And Doug would probably know this, and a lot of the guys that have done competition, that first trophy or ribbon you win, you get a bug, and you just want to win more trophies and more ribbons and more awards. And that's where absolutely kids want to, and that's the motivational tool. It's almost like video games where, you know, you want to game up. So if you do badly the first time of your game, the next game you want to get better so that you can walk away with that ribbon or that trophy. And I mean, I hate to say it. I'm hoping in four years I get to do what Doug does and go around and do some adult cook-offs and, and try my hand at competition barbecue and, and see if I can win some stuff. And, you know, I've got a, a little man cave like most guys do at their place. And I, I live at my, my wife's 60-acre ranch. So we've got some big plans for just doing some stuff. And But uh, that's the motivational factor. And, and that was another aha moment for me was when two times I saw a kid that was failing in school that was not connected in any way win grand champion chicken. And that kid held that trophy up high over his head. And he was a changed kid the next day he came to school. He walked around and he was smiling. He had his shoulders back. He was proud of who he was. And you could see the difference. And then my own daughter, unfortunately, she beat me two years in a row. And she won one year grand champion chicken. <laughs> and to see my wife and I ball our eyes out while our kid is up there getting a trophy for cooking chicken. I would have thought if I had a son, I don't. But if that, it was my son, I'd be... That that makes sense. But here's my daughter cooking outdoors, and, and that was another kind of aha moment. We now have the high school barbecue, uh, first ladies of high school barbecue, and we've got probably 25 all-girls teams. We've got the meat mommies, the barbecuties, the uh, the cowgirls, uh, the Taylor, the Swifty barbecue, and these girls are tearing it up. I mean, uh, last year, one of the teams, they won – third in the country and right now we've got of the 12 regional champions we have five of them are all girls teams three of them are middle school teams so we've got some you know middle school kids that are 10 and 12 years old beating high school students and, and the look on their faces is, is just classic because they were from san antonio and they cooked it on probably four whatever kettle you know the generic walmart 99 dollar cookers and they walked in and they they tore it up and they're they were on point with their flavors and their execution. And you know, at the end of the day, they beat a bunch of high school kids. And that's where now all of a sudden that rivalry starts. And that's what motivates kids. They hate to lose. They hate to get embarrassed in front of their their peers or their parents. There's a little bit of guilt and a little bit of shame. And then they realize, you know what? I can't just show up to the cook off. I've got to do my mental preparedness. I've got to do my mise en place. I've got to get organized. I've got to practice. I've got to develop my flavors, and I've got to go and do this over and over again. And in the culinary world, they say you can't master anything until you've done it a thousand times. So if you've done it twice and you give up, then you didn't try, right? right. And that's something that we're trying to teach kids is a lot of kids today, they, they fail and they want to quit, and they just want to give up. Well, that's not how it works in barbecue a lot of times. And Mike, you know, this is one thing where it doesn't matter what your sex is because it's, you know, it's cooking. doesn't matter male, female. So it's great that what you hear a lot in competition barbecue is when you have women competitors, people act surprised. And it's great 
that because maybe that's changing and this generation will change that. So by the time they become adults and are in competition barbecue, you won't hear, oh, wow, you know, this is a woman barbecuer. Won't matter. That won't make a difference. Well, and that's the cool thing is it also crosses every socioeconomic boundary there is. It doesn't matter if you're a rich kid or a rich school or a poor kid in a poor school. It doesn't matter ethnicity. It doesn't matter gender. You can cook on the, the like these middle school kids on $400 with the smokers and you can beat anybody on any given day. And I think in Texas, and, and I'm just speaking for Texas, but you know, Tootsie probably put the Lady Pitmasters on the map and we had last year our national championship. We had four of the top female pitmasters in Texas as speakers. And it was pretty inspiring because, you know, the guys understand these girls are going to hand them their lunch every single time. And they're not someone to be looked down on. And as a dad, I've got a, an only child, a daughter. You know, that's how I raised my girl is you're going to go in there and you're going to whoop up on the boys and show them that you can do it just like anybody else. And and, and that's kind of cool. You know, it, it really brings everybody together. And we've got groups of kids that are from different walks of life. We've got some special ed uh, kids. We've got a few kids in wheelchairs. Uh, we've got some autistic students. Uh, we've got, you know, all the mixes from the different, whatever clique you remember in high school. We've got a lot of kids that wouldn't necessarily work together any other time, but they're finding that they have common ground and they have things in common and they can have fun, good old fashioned tailgate or cook-off or whatever you want to call it, competition, it just works. And that's why I say it's an accident. You know, I, I never in my wildest dreams that I dream all this up. It's been a journey and it's been one accident, one thing after a time that basically turned into something special. And, and I saw it. And when you see it working as a teacher, that's what we dream about. We go to work every day to try to get kids to have fun and get them engaged. And it's engaged my whole school. I mean, we're right now getting a, a brand new CT center with a brand new kitchen and restaurant. And we're probably going to have the first high school in Texas that has a barbecue restaurant in our high school. So we've got sausage grinders and smokers wow. and everything. Wow. wow. So if, are you also partnering, you mentioned a little earlier in terms of uh, the building and construction. Cause uh, I actually know my wife knows one of the kids that actually won the contest. I guess there's a statewide contest to build smokers and they get judged and things like that. Are you partnering with that, that group as well? Is that part of it? I'm not sure which, which group that is. If it's part of FFA, uh, FFA is, I think they call it Ag Mechanics. Uh, we haven't done anything with them. That's how it started is it was a partnership between FFA and Ag Mechanics because the welding shop was across the street or across the hallway from my culinary kitchen. And I'm in an, a group called FCCLA, which is another student group. But uh, we haven't formally done anything with them. When we first started, we had some what they call weld-offs. And we brought in three community colleges, Austin Community College, uh, Central Texas College, and Texas State Technical College. And the college kids welded a barbecue grill or pit in the parking lot where these kids were cooking. And they had the same time the kids were cooking. And at the end of it, they judged them and they gave those away as prizes to the high school students. So it was a cool oh, okay. deal to be able to let the colleges show off and show what the welding students could do. And they were using it for marketing to give back to high school students. And uh, it was kind of a win-win. Uh, we encourage people to build if they want to, but it's not required uh, because in Texas, a lot of guys do the big uh, offset smokers 
whereas a lot of places in the country, they either don't have that or they don't have the storage capability. So we've gone to drums have become real popular. Uh, the kettles have come, become real popular. SCA style cookers like a PK or a, uh, the C4s from uh, M grills, those kinds of things. We've seen some Hasty Bakes. We've seen some uh, Weber or Old Smoky Mountain across the, the board because they're easier to transport in a, in a pickup truck. And, you know, now we've got schools that have five teams. They may have three teams and two middle school teams. So how do you haul all that equipment around? We've got schools that show up with trailers and school buses full of kids and equipment. I would imagine, and I see from, from your website, that businesses want to be a part of this. I mean, you've got some great sponsors, and certainly we recognize some of them because it's such a great cause. It's such who doesn't want to support kids, you know? So I would imagine, and I hope that's to be the case, that you don't have to twist these sponsors' arms too hard because they all want to get behind it. Well, it's been a challenge because in some cases, a lot of people don't understand it. And some of the sponsors are already, uh, and that was the thing I learned with my daughter being in FFA. I'm, I'm grateful. Don't get me wrong. She got a $20,000 Houston Rodeo scholarship and she won probably $60,000 in scholarships competing in FFA events. But that money doesn't trickle over to other kids in the school, unfortunately. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, 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 we support farmers and ranchers and we promote them everywhere we go because of what they do to allow us to cook the food. But in the end, the, the ranching and farming community is a close knit and they take care of their own and they give back like nobody I've ever seen. And that's the thing about barbecue that since we've been doing it, I've never raised more money with anything in my 24 years of teaching than with what I have with barbecue. And that's what I preach to teachers is like, look, you want to make some good money, sell barbecue, start a barbecue team. The school districts don't understand in investing assets to make revenue. That's not the way they think. But if you can invest in a $10,000 smoker that's going to be around for 20 years and you can make $50,000 over a certain period of time feeding your campus and saving the campus food cost, that's a win-win for everybody. And unfortunately, education doesn't think that way. We're trying to change that mindset and get them to say, look, you buy this equipment and your kids are going to get a learning experience and they're going to, you're going to get to eat barbecue as the principal and the superintendent and as counselors and the teachers all the time. And your parents are going to be really happy because your kids are going to come home smelling like smoke. Speaking of smoke, you have an acronym for smoke. Specific, measurable, objective, knowledge attained, and educational outcomes, which is the way that, that these kids get together and, and perform as a team. How many team? What what consists of a team? Well, one to five kids, or how many how many teams are there in a particular school? I mean, is there a, a limit? And how do you uh, how do you get funds to to pay for the meat or is that donated by uh sponsors we we recommend seven kids on a team so that you have two alternates in case kids don't pass or kids get sick or something happens and a lot of times the schools will do the two alternates or you know they're middle school kids or they're underclassmen ninth graders so that they can start to feed into that team just like you would jv and varsity sports we've got schools that have six teams is the, is the most right now at a school district and that's two middle school teams and four high school teams. I have four teams at my school. And currently I've got the Duck Dudes, the Party Fowls, uh, the Duck Dynasty, and the Crazy crazy Swans. 
And then the meat, it's all across the board. Some communities, they have local butchers and grocery stores that donate on a regular basis and say, look, I just want to support your kids. Tell me what you need. Others, they have to buy it at wholesale where they'll go to a local you know, grocery store and, and get it. And in some cases, they have to fundraise. You know, it, it varies across the board. We've got several different models for fundraising. The easiest one is just to sell advertising on their shirts. And I raised $8,000 last year from local community saying, I want to put my logo on our on your trailer and on your, your barbecue team shirt to say I'm supporting kids and supporting education. Oh, Lynn, I was I was coming in, so you you let me know. Sorry, it's very interesting because these kids are, you know, you you talk about you mentioned a couple of things like you you mentioned high school rodeo, high school bass fishing. I mean, those are great things for kids, you know, and and this high school barbecue. If we had that in my high school, I would have loved it. And I just now Doug got involved in barbecue. I, I don't want to say later in life, Doug, because you're not that old, but it was later. Yeah. So, Doug, if they had that in your high school, right? And you you went to high school in Texas, right? Actually, I went to Clovis, nine miles from the Texas border, but uh, okay. kind of yeah, the handle of Texas for the most part. Do you think that would have turned you on to barbecue sooner? Not for me personally, but yeah, I was more into you know sports. I I did several sports. I had tennis and baseball and things like that. So, so, so Mike, the, my question is then, do some of the kids do both? Are they able to do both? Or is this such a, do they have to dedicate so much time that they're not able to do other activities? Or are they able to split their time? Oh, absolutely. And ironically, it fits real well with baseball. We've had a bunch of teams where, they do barbecue in the fall because there's no baseball. And then in the spring when baseball season starts, they're in the baseball season, but they've already qualified for the state championship. So then they play their baseball. And last year we had a team from London high school and they ended up making it to the area playoffs in baseball. They left the baseball game to go to a barbecue competition after they had won the area championship and then went and cooked with their, their teammates. And they were all baseball players on the same team. So there's a lot of crossover in that situation that and mike i think everybody would be interested again jeff mentioned it before it's high school bbq league.com uh cbs this morning came and did a did a special on you guys on uh, and you're in that and i saw that when they were outside people were they were it wasn't warm they were you know in coats and you guys are out there no matter what the weather I mean, you're doing it just like the adults are doing it. And all the elements doesn't matter. If it's raining, they're not playing baseball. If it's raining, football, yes. But certain things that, right? But you guys, doesn't matter. The elements have no effect. You will still go out and cook. We haven't cooked in the snow yet, knock on wood. But we've done <laughs> everything else. You haven't lived until you've cooked in, in uh, West Texas in the panhandle with the sandstorms and all that. But, uh, I mean, we have rain. We have, you know, all the above. Last year, this, the national championship, unfortunately, it was probably about 110 degrees on the pavement when they were cooking in the parking lot. Wow. So it was hotter than it ever has been. Uh, we had Mark Lambert and uh, Faith and Fire Ministries going around in a, a golf cart giving everybody Astro Pop popsicles to keep them cool but uh yeah that's the thing they they cook in all elements just like anybody else so it's another life lesson 
you know, learning that no matter what, when you commit, you're going to wake up and you're going to get it done. When it's that hot, you don't even need a fire. You just put the meat out, <laughs> let it cook in the sun. Yes. Uh, Mike, uh, before we let you go, and, and Doug is going to wrap up uh, shortly, but, you know, on your website, as, as Len said, there's a couple of things on here that is very, very impressive, and especially the, the rules and regulations. That's a 22-page document, which, I mean, it's quite extensive, and, you know, everybody has to follow. But I'm very impressed with the uh, high school barbecue sportsmanship agreement. Because that is, I mean, that really binds everybody together. You know, it, it really keeps pe- the kids together and, and respectful and sportsmanship and and, uh, and character and fairness and responsibility. You want to talk a little about the sportsmanship agreement? Well, I mean, basically, just like any other athletics, and I grew up playing, uh, I played basketball, but mainly soccer was my sport. And, you know, just realizing that in, in the FFA world, uh, whether you're showing steers or showing pigs or whatever, that's one area where I saw my own daughter. She learned a lot of uh, community and a lot of collaboration and rooting for your teammates and win or lose. And I mean, in Texas, a lot of the kids, if they lose, they're still required to walk across the field and shake hands and look each other in the eyes and say, look, you know, congratulations. And and I think that's something that kids need today, that there's a lot of things that barbecue is teaching them that we grew up where we had home ec and we had a lot of classes where we might have had a mom or someone at the house. Nowadays, a lot of kids are raising themselves. They're growing up with mom and dad both working full time and they're not learning a lot of the life skills and a lot of the social skills that I think barbecue teaches as well as, you know, that's why we call it high school barbecue family is, you know, these kids become like family and some of them have, don't see each other two or three times a year at cook-offs, but when they see each other, they're super excited and you know, we try to instill that. To, I mean, part of our, our mission is to to build character in kids and things like teaching them to honor the, the country and respect our flag. It doesn't matter what states you're in. Our logo is designed so that every single state, it's red, white, and blue. Because it doesn't matter if you're in Texas or New Jersey or New York or California. We're all Americans honoring ranchers and farmers for what they do every day and the food they put on our table. And I think that's the biggest issue that nobody's talking about right now is our food supply, you know, and getting kids to understand how precious that meat is that they raised. And now they're getting to cook it and turn it into something to feed their family. And then, you know, honoring faith. I think faith is a big part of human, human being. And it doesn't matter what your faith is. I have a a really profound admiration for people of faith and there doesn't matter what the religion they have some some standards that they go by and they live by. And I think that's something that our world needs today. And, and kids need to see other kids out there that are growing up and, and they've got, you know, whether they believe in Jesus or they, you know, read a Bible or they go to church. It doesn't matter what denomination, that they're not alone. And I think there's a lot of, of wokeness out in the world today that all these things are bad. But we're not talking about all the good things that we have in common and all the things that kids can mutually agree on and have fun on instead of dividing people. We want to bring people together. And that's what barbecue does. It brings people together. Yeah. I'm into that. (laughs) Amen. So, well, Mike, you've been very generous with your time and we really have learned a lot about it. And uh, I hope this helps spread the word about the high school barbecue league, uh, not only in Texas, but also in the U S but I can't let you off the show without understanding who gave you the the nickname, the barbecue principal. <laughs> it was some kids. 
and they, they were making a joke. I think they were trying to be funny and making a joke that, you know, I go to every event. I'm at every cook-off. Me and my wife are at every cook-off. And uh, over time, you know, it just started to stick. And I was like, it kind of makes sense because technically I'm not I'm not the superintendent and I'm not <laughs> cooking. Uh, and, you know, so I ended up taking it on. And now I've got a, a knife roll that says the barbecue principal and uh, – I think it, Tuffy Stone already had the professor, so I love that one. And there's a couple other yep. guys out there that have. Uh, I think there's one called the meat, the meat teacher or something. So I was like, okay, I'll be the barbecue principal from now on if, if it gets me to allow me to work with these kids and do these events. And I mean, I never would have met any of you because of that. And that's what I love, you know, just like the podcast model is. I meet people from all over the country that I've never met, and we some of us have become friends. I've learned a lot. I get to pick their brains and, uh, you know, hoping someday we make it up into the New England area. I've been working on Johnson and Wales to see if you know, they've got a campus in Charlotte, trying to see if we can get something in, with CIA. And uh, obviously, two of my alumni is very proud to, to go to school there, but they do a lot in the culinary world and scholarships and whatnot. We're actually headed. I, I was practicing for an event. We're going to Corpus Christi Thursday to compete in a mystery basket and then another competition where they do uh, – two different uh, dessert and entree in an hour teaching the kids mise en place and organization and kind of getting prepared for that. But uh, it's nice to finally meet you, Doug and, and you guys. Absolutely. Uh, honor, <laughs> honored to be on your show. Uh, what you guys do is awesome. You know, I wish I was more of a, a baseball fan, but I think I've been to one baseball game in my old a whole career and it was up in Boston at the, the green mile. Uh, and then uh, it may have been college football, but uh, hoping this spreads and continues to grow and, I'm going to make the announcement here that someday we're going to have college barbecue. It's coming. They give scholarships for college bass fishing and college clay shooting and college everything else. We've got some schools and some places out there, Texas Tech, Texas A&M, Oklahoma State, some of these ag schools. I hope they step up and they start giving some scholarships out to kids who are passionate about barbecue and cooking, and I think that would be really cool. Yeah, I I agree with that. Yeah, abs- absolutely. But uh, and yeah, you don't have to. You know, it's so funny you mentioned it's, you wish you were more of a baseball fan. We we never have anybody on who says I wish I was more of a barbecue fan. <laughs> they may come on and say I can't cook barbecue, but nobody has ever come on and said they didn't like barbecue. Everybody loves barbecue, so I really think that uh, your your league could be like Doug said all over the country so we wish you the the, the very best with this Absolutely. league we, we uh hope it continues to grow and grow and, and spread throughout the united states because i think it's a great great idea to get kids to go outside and get off it get off their devices and go cook some really good food so that's uh that's great uh mike thank you for joining us on baseball and bbq we wish you the best of luck we appreciate it if we ever make it to your backyard you're vip judges so <laughs> thanks again gentlemen nice to meet y'all thank you thank you mike Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Doug, for joining us with that. Wow, Jeff, I I only wish I wish my high school had anything like that. That's that's phenomenal. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It is great. So, as we wrap up, want to let everybody know that we are presented by Bet Online. It is where the game starts, but we're not starting. We're ending. And what a what a show, Jeff, the Grandy Man, Curtis Granderson, Mike Erickson, Doug Shiding, a pet peeve by Chris Gallagher, you, me, our listeners, 
227 is a really good episode. Absolutely. And we'll be back with 228 next week. So how do we end? We're going to end with the poet, and that is Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser, and the song, Jeff, is what? Baseball always brings you home. It certainly does. See you next week.